Made to be Broken, Episode 7. I'm your host, Andrew Ligon Fant, and today I'm joined by my co hosts, William Corbin and Caleb Thompson. Today's guest is Gage Patton. Before going to law school, Gage did his undergrad at UGA, then spent two years working in the agriculture industry. In this episode, we talk about hunting and conservation, as well as what inspired Gage to go to law school. Check the description for a link to Gage's blog, Millennial Woodsman, as well as links to other things we talk about in this episode. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help us out, the best way you can do that is by subscribing, sharing with a friend, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or comments, you can send a voicemail using the link in the podcast description or send us an email at mtbbpodcast at gmail.com. Gage, welcome to the show. We've been looking forward to having you on. Ligon, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Well, I have a question for you. So we're, we're all struggling to balance life and hobbies and recreational activities with law school, mm-hmm. and you seem to be doing it right. Uh, I saw some pictures on your blog, which we will get into later, but I saw some pictures, and you sent me one, of a buck that you killed with a bow. Um on a school night mm-hmm. tell me about that how, how did that happen yeah what, what made you think it was a good idea to go yeah. hunting oh, man. on a monday what i've been telling idea. what i've been telling people is short-term decision probably not a good decision but long-term decision i think it was definitely the right decision so I'll, well, it's I'll, a good story if nothing else oh man it was it was a blast honestly so it was two weeks ago about two weeks ago september the 21st and it was one of those First days of fall where you can really just taste fall in the air. It was a crystal clear blue sky. It was one of our uh, Monday in-person days whenever our classes ended at 2.10. And so I walked outside after class, and I felt the weather, and I was like, man, it is beautiful today. I'd been getting pictures of this buck on camera. I knew he was going to be coming out because of this high-pressure system that had moved through. Cool weather. a nice breeze blowing. And uh, I looked at my planner and saw that I didn't have any more class the rest of the day. I had almost caught up on all of my readings. I had class in the morning at, uh, I think, 9.30. It was legal writing. But I thought to myself, man, I just, I've got to get outside, and I've just got to go on a walk or something. And so I went on a walk, and then I thought to myself, well, I wonder if I could actually go hunting today. So we've got this piece of land. It's about 35 minutes out of town in Wilkes County, and... Uh, I thought to myself, it would only take me 35 minutes to get there. I could be in the stand in 30 more minutes, and I could hunt this evening, and I could be back for legal writing in the morning. I could just drive back tonight. And if I get one, then I'll I'll worry about it later. So uh, I ended up doing it. I just a spur-of-the-moment decision. um, Looked ahead at my planner and realized that I didn't have, you know, I had all of my readings completed. And so anyway... Long story short, I sit in this stand where this buck's been coming out very frequently. He comes out after about 20 other deer, saw a ton of deer that evening, and um, ended up making the shot. It was a pretty long shot. It was about 44 yards, and uh, made the shot and hit the deer a little bit low and back. And whenever I hit him, I knew instantly. I was like, man, that wasn't the best shot. And so I backed out, and I called several of my buddies, and anyway, they came and helped me look for him. And gosh, it probably wasn't, it was probably 1130 at night whenever we finally found this deer. It was late at night, but, uh, he was my best bow buck I've ever killed. Um, 
I paid the consequences later in the week, though, with loss of sleep. I was sleep-deprived the entire rest of the week, and it wasn't until about Friday that I finally got caught up on my rest. But I look back at those pictures, and I just think to myself, man, that, even though I suffered on sleep deprivation, that kind of activity is just energizing. Like, I think it was so important for me, just like mentally and, you know, for my headspace, emotionally even, to go do an activity that I enjoyed to refuel me. Because, like, whenever the the days get long and preparation for contracts is difficult, like what do I do? I'll get my phone out and I'll look at deer pictures and I'll just dream about, man, when's the next time I'm going to get to go hunting? And so it's that kind of thing that keeps me going. Like, that's my goal. If I can get contracts reading done, if I can finish my Civ Pro reading, then I can go hunt. And so that was, you know, I'd worked hard the previous weekend and the previous week, got my reading done, saw the weather was going to be good and just, just struck out and uh, it ended up working out. It's pretty wild. So it was a little bit spontaneous. Yeah, it was pretty spontaneous. Um, I think <laughs> I, I told people it's about like creative time management, you know, like finding the little gaps in your schedule where you can fit that thing in that you enjoy. And then, you know, <laughs> and honestly for me, it was like, well, I'll go do this. I'll go hunt. And then I'll just worry later about whatever readings I'm going to have to do. But I had a general idea that I've got pretty much everything done that I need to do for tomorrow. And that was kind of what enabled me to go that afternoon. I had the afternoon free. I am supremely jealous that A, <laughs> you were able to go on a night, you know, because I live just far enough away from home by camp. But that's, that's legit. Like, you should put that on a resume. I, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you're applying to the right, if you're applying some kind of like wildlife conservation or something, you know, like shot buck during one L <laughs> on a weekday. Yes. William, you hunt a lot, right? Um, not a lot. Nowhere near as much or as Gage. You hunt, right? Yes. No, I hunt. I love the outdoors. Um, I live like two hours, fifteen minutes away. It's one of the things I do. Like, that's one of the things driving crazy about here because it's the longest place I've lived in for more than a month. The biggest place, like, and Athens isn't that big. Like, you know, I'm so I'm just used to the trees and everything, so I got to go back home every once in a while. Just to backtrack a little bit, so you're yeah. from Georgia originally, right? So you're born and raised in Georgia. Yes. Yeah, so I was born in I was born and raised in a little small town in South Georgia called Baxley. Um, primarily, we're an agriculture-based community. That's what my dad does. He owns a business there that actually manufactures farm equipment. So specifically for the poultry industry, the machine actually cleans out chicken houses. Um, and so I grew up knowing that. Now uh, that to, yeah. to some people, that may sound yeah. like, <laughs> if, if you're not familiar with what a chicken house looks yeah. like, that may sound like your dad builds like Roombas or something. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. yeah. Let me so let me. Uh, I, I don't want to make this about bit. your dad, but were you involved in this at all? In yeah, I actually business? worked for him in okay. between the time that I finished undergrad here at Georgia and the time I came here to law school. I actually worked for him for for almost a year. Yeah, at the family business at home. What, so what is that? What exactly goes into cleaning a chicken house with this machine? Yeah, so. I will. Uh, I'll try to start from sort of the beginning. It's it's called a Lewis Poultry Housekeeper. So Lewis Brothers Manufacturing is the name of the company, the name of the business. So if you can picture this, um, a chicken house that I'm referring to, uh, we grow what are called broilers. So they're meat chickens, the chickens that get sold to Chick Fil A, KFC, 
Um, that's primarily where our integrator sells our chicken to. Yeah. So. Oh, so you provide the Lord's chicken. Yeah, that's right. You okay, may you're going to get some it. automatic uh, brownie points in heaven. Uh, <laughs> make sure we're going to take notes on that. Yeah, you may have eaten a, a Patton Farms uh, chicken on your Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich before. It is possible. But anyway, the machine, it attaches to the back of a tractor. And so these chicken houses, like I was saying, they're actually 500 feet long. So not not chicken house like you would think. It's like not a small, like a chicken coop not in a coop. backyard. No, no, yeah. no. No, it, they're 500 feet long. And if you can picture that, that's farther than home plate to center field on a baseball field. Farther than that. So very long, long chicken houses. They hold about 26,000 chickens in each house. So quite a few. And... um this machine is pulled behind a tractor and it's got a, a hydraulic pump system that essentially sifts the chicken litter, the chicken poop, the feathers and all of the refuse that accumulates on the bottom of the chicken house goes through the chicken house and sifts it. So what it does is it recycles the reusable material, goes back to the floor of the chicken house and all of the stuff that can be used for fertilizer, it comes in clumps, they call it cake. It accumulates in this machine and then the farmer can then go stockpile this material. It has a, a dumping feature like a dump truck. So it then dumps all the material in the place where they will stockpile it and then they'll use it for fertilizer and such. So the machine essentially cleans the chicken house in that way, kind of recycling the chicken litter. Hmm. Yep. It's very far outside of anything I understand. <laughs> I, I did not grow up with chicken houses yeah. or chickens. I, so I grew up on land. The land did not have animals that we cultivated. So we just took whatever was there. So, there you, you know, the bear, the occasional, you know, lots of deer, whatever. So. It, it is beautiful though, to think about how, how efficient that is. Um, I, I mean, learning about, learning about modern agriculture is just very interesting because it's, it's just so much, there, there's actually a lot of innovation and absolutely productivity involved absolutely it's fascinating and there's such a huge demand for it a lot of times i think uh lots of people take for granted where their food actually comes from like they have no perception or conception of who personally grows their food there is like an actual person that lives somewhere that is growing this product for them to consume in the like the supply chain that gets that chicken like from you know palm of your hand-sized baby chick into a four-pound bird that then turns into something on your plate is is really phenomenal it's really fascinating so yeah my my mom at one point i think she was doing something like a guidance counselor role at a school and there was an exercise with the kids where at one point it came to her attention that they sincerely believed that eggs came from a grocery store and did not in any way come from a farm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this reminds me. Oh, man, that's insane. But the story I just ran into was some uh, co-workers' kids didn't know that, um, like, corn, they didn't know that, like, they just thought it came like it did in the grocery store. They didn't know you didn't know you actually had to shuck it. But, um, yeah, that <laughs> a minor thing compared to, you know, eggs coming from grocery stores, but it's still crazy. Have you, do you uh, process your own deer that you killed? Most of the time, uh, so what I enjoy doing the most is I, I will clean them. So I will, you know, debone them, quarter them up, put them in a cooler with ice. And then a lot of my dad's employees uh, love deer. And I usually shoot several in a year, so I, I don't usually have a shortage of deer meat in the freezer. 
but uh, I will just take a whole cooler full of deboned deer meat to these guys there at work, and the, his employees will take them, and then they'll do their own processing. But these past, see, I've killed, I've actually killed four deer this year already, so I killed three more last weekend. I have to tell you about how those. Many can, <laughs> how many can you kill a year? Yeah, so you can kill in Georgia uh, 10 does and two bucks per year, so wow. 12 Wait. deer. Yeah, so it's pretty liberal. Wait, 10 does? 10 does, that's right. Why is it not inverse? Because... I know in South Carolina we have more restrictions on does and bucks because the logic goes that you know well you, does can only make two kids or one or two whatever a year right. but the buck can you know just get all the does right. pregnant. Yeah, that's, I don't, that's interesting. I don't know what the conservation strategy is there, but I think it's it's mostly the the biggest consideration is herd balance. I think that they just want a, a generally balanced herd, and there are some, you know, there's a minor restriction there on the bucks also. You know, one of the bucks has to have at least four points on one side, and the other can can be whatever you want it to be. Um, but I'm sure there is some uh, uh, informed policy decision making that is going on there with, you know, uh, taking into account herd populations and things like that across the state. So, but I'm not exactly sure. Speaking of appreciating where your food comes from, so I, I do think. A lot of people, myself included, often don't think about where our food comes from, really. You go to the grocery store, you pick it up. Not a whole lot of thought goes into it. How different is it for you to eat meat from an animal you killed versus meat that you got at the grocery store? Oh, that is such a good question because it's such, this may sound weird, but it's such a much more personal experience and like a much more satisfying experience to eat something that I have harvested in the field myself because... Like, in one sense, people who do not grow up in an agricultural setting have a greater appreciation for the food that they consume whenever they establish some kind of connection. Like, if they meet a farmer, say, and then they see, oh, this is where my hamburger or my chicken comes from or my eggs. This is where that comes from. They appreciate that food more just because they have the awareness of that's where their food came from. But if you are actually the one who is going out and collecting or harvesting your own food and like using a skill set that is actually kind of unique uh, in like woodsmanship knowledge and you go and harvest your own game process it yourself cook it yourself put it on the food consume it there is something much more satisfying than just like satiating your hunger in ever in that situation like you are you're just feel this enormous sense of satisfaction in that and I think it, it comes from just like what you said, like this connection to uh, the food that you're harvesting there. So it's, yeah. it's definitely a more satisfying experience. And I think there is some argument to be made uh, that it is in a, a, lot of, a lot of ways healthier. Uh, I know that venison is definitely leaner than beef. And um, yeah, it's just, it's generally good for you. And it tastes delicious too. I think I could put a, a piece of like a, a deer backstrap steak on a plate next to a uh, a fillet steak and say hey try this one and try this one and it'd be pretty close the way that i cook it yeah yeah so i'd like to ask you a couple questions about ethics so i think a lot of people who don't hunt and don't a lot of people don't even know a lot of hunters or even any hunters Mm -hmm. um and they may have some misconceptions or just a lot of questions about the ethics of hunting so Mm -hmm. one of them is like the specifics of, so you said, you know, it's a long shot, 44 yards. Mm-hmm. For a bow, that's a, a pretty long shot. Yeah. Um, so one is like specifically how you make those decisions when you take mm-hmm. a shot. And then the other would be 
Um, I think there's a pretty broad misconception that conservation mm. is separate from hunting. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd like to ask, like, how do hunting and conservation kind of line up? Mm-hmm. And um, so starting with the first one. So you see a deer, you pick, you know, you decide that's the one yeah. for myriad reasons, whatever mm-hmm. reasons you have. Yeah. Um, how do you decide whether or not to take a shot and what are kind of the, the ethical principles that hunters generally follow there yeah so um you know there are like you said there are some general principles that you abide by and i think that there needs to be some some a little bit of grace for hunters there because in the field there are always going to be really difficult decisions to be made in this area and sometimes we make the wrong decision but we always attempt to make the right decision we have the best intentions and these are our intentions um some of the things that i look for and taking an ethical shot so that's the first thing and then the second consideration is to make the shot um but to take the ethical shot you need to you know have a a good knowledge of yourself like what of your own capabilities how proficient am i with this weapon so like practice uh prepare with your bow uh target practice considerably so that you know okay i'm effective out to this range i know that i can hit a pie plate sized area at 30 yards, 10 times out of 10. Like, I can do that. That's no problem. And I think it's just, it comes from being able to gauge yourself from your practice, right? And that, you know, that preparation, I think, factors into the ethical consideration there because, obviously, the goal of the hunter there is to make the the your shot as ethical as possible, like, to get the quickest kill on the animal as you can um, because it's just the right thing to do. So, you determine the distance and your um, effective range essentially through practice, but you always also want to take a look at the angle that the animal is standing at. So a lot of times if the animal and the animal's uh, body language as well. So you want to take shots where the, like in my case, I waited for this buck to turn completely broadside as opposed to a quartering two angle. And that quartering two angle is difficult because his front shoulder is going to actually obstruct a lot of his vitals. And so you Can wait. Can you just describe the quartering two angle? Yeah, yeah. So the quartering, the quartering two angle, that's going to be whenever uh, the deer's head is kind of at a, a 45 degree angle facing you. So he's almost facing you, but not quite. And broadside is going to be uh, like you're looking straight at the deer's rib cage. His rib cage is at a perpendicular angle to your line of vision. And that is an ideal. Uh, angle shot angle to take and also if he's slightly quartered away from you so that is if his uh, hams are slightly closer to you than his front shoulder so if he's slightly angled away both of those angles are um, effective shots to take and they are they're the most ethical angles to look for um and then what was your second question also um so before we move on to that yeah, though I want one follow on question. Yes. To that. So one objection I often hear to yeah, hunting yeah. Mm-hmm. and I just like to get your, per- I have a perspective on it, but I'd like to hear your perspective yeah. is why would you go out and take this wild animal that's, you know, in, in its natural habitat and enjoying a you know great life out there. And why would you go out and kill that when you could instead either go to the grocery store mm. or, or, you know, get meat through other options. What, yeah. what are the considerations there? Yeah, I think it's a fair question. Um, but I, I, I like to give this analogy whenever someone comes to me with that, that question there. So I think it is uh, a similar situation is this. So 
you buy your vegetables at a grocery store, right? Um, but a lot of people actually prefer to grow a garden in their backyard. They grow, they prefer to grow their own tomatoes. They like homegrown tomatoes, right? They like to do it themselves. They like to have that connection with the land, right? They like to reap the benefits of something, some effort that they put forth, and they know exactly where it's coming from. It's fresh and it's available to them. They can control the supply there, and it's fulfilling. It's a fulfilling experience, also, right? So very similarly, hunting, you're doing an activity that gets you outside, right? You are expending a certain amount of effort to uh, know the land, know this creature, like have a great respect for them. So like, just like a a person who's growing a garden in their backyard is going to uh, tend the soil and exert the effort necessary to allow the ground to bear fruit, like to be productive, a hunter is the exact same, is serving the exact same function. And this kind of gets into our conversation about conservation in just a minute. The hunter has a role of engaging with the wildlife in order to uh, produce, like ensure that the landscape and the wildlife, the flora and fauna are as productive as they can be. So, how does, what does that look like practically, practically for the hunter? We go out and we plant food plots. We feed the deer. We uh, exercise uh, good land management practices like controlled burns in the wintertime so that new forage and green growth will spring up in the springtime and feed these deer, give them good forage to feed on in the spring whenever they're, they're nursing little ones. So we employ all of these land, these sound land management practices in order that the land will be fruitful and it will be productive. The deer will, like, um, there will be a, uh, a healthy herd of deer. And whenever there's a healthy herd, that's like the same thing as the home gardener having a good crop of tomatoes in the backyard. So we can go harvest from that productive landscape in a sustainable way. So obviously we don't want to over-harvest, but it's a resource, right? Just like the garden is a resource that we're able to reap and gather from and then consume, wildlife is a delicious and nutritious uh, and a fulfilling a resource that we can partake of also it's it's all about like stewardship of the land so that it will be productive that we can reap a harvest off of it and it is it's like i said before it's not only a a satisfying experience like to to satisfy your hunger but it is a uh, just a, a total satisfaction experience yeah yeah and you said it way better than i ever could and just to give an idea of how you know, difficult these choices can be, uh, just to share something a little personal. One time, uh, I had basically a 20 yard shot and it was a perfect shot heart. Like it was basically nailed it, but the deer just jolted off. And so we looked at it later and it was somewhere right between the heart, lung and shoulder to where it just mm-hmm. missed everything. Mm-hmm. So it was a shot that should have went perfectly, but it didn't. And so, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. The other thing is that's right. last year I was hunting and I, um, I had seen a deer and then I let it go by and I saw another deer and it's a long story. So I turn around backwards. It's a shot I figured I could make. So I'm mm-hmm. pretty good with my gun. I'll say it's at least 75, not a hundred yards, something like that. But I ended up long story short, I ended up shooting and I thought I hit it and I went and I searched and I didn't see any blood. And then I saw some blood just in an isolated spot, but I could never track it down. Mm-hmm. And that really, I guess it hit home with me and it bothered me yeah. and just want people to know that like 
those people go out and just kill a hundred bucks a year a year with no that's not what this is about no. and you i mean we make mistakes you know i think i made yeah. a mistake with that deer i don't know mm-hmm. if it lived i don't know if it died i don't know what happened to it but it's it's you said it way more eloquently than i could it's about conserving and you know being a friend of the animal and so on and so forth it's not just about racking up kills and it's not about you Absolutely, know yeah. whatever that's right, and I think social media, too, has played into some of the hunter's demise as well, and can sometimes, and outdoor TV as well, can sometimes give the perception that we're just about the grip and grin, right? Like the sitting on top of the deer's back, holding the antlers in front of the camera, and like, this is what it's all about, right? Well, it's not. It's really not. That's not the perception that hunting uh, really should be projecting, Um I, I think that if someone really wants a, a good taste of what hunting should be, they should check out Randy Newberg on YouTube. Um, he is a, a great proponent for conservation and uh, good land management and uh, harvesting the resource and making good use of the resource in a sustainable way. Well, it probably goes into a lot of people who say bring up some kind of ethical hunting issue is actually pretty simple you know you're you're killing something and most living beings really don't like being killed i hear that and i i i don't particularly agree with it uh at all because obviously i'm a hunter right but um if you think about i mean people who eat chicken or beef or any other meat product that comes from you know that you find in the grocery store all of those were at one time animals uh with a heartbeat with a life that had to be uh slaughtered or killed at some point and then processed in order to become food for us and um you know i i understand if you you know if if someone has a problem with that but i I personally think that you know those animals are are gifts and we should you know we should use them and uh and benefit from them because they were put here for us to use and benefit from well i didn't say necessarily that i was no no definitely not no yeah and i think there is there is a weirdness though because that position that position on hunting seems a lot more common than sort of outright veganism or vegetarianism. Sure. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, if you take if you take the moral assumption, either killing animals are wrong, is wrong, or I just don't want to be associated with killing animals. It seems weird to single out hunters. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Especially considering, I think most wild animals live much more natural and normal lives than. Uh, yeah, so my, my thought has, has always been fairly related to your, what, what you just said in that um, I, I've heard this quite a bit, like, what, you know, why would you have to go out and kill a wild animal? It's different to kill a cow that's, you know, raised for food or whatever. I, I've always thought that that position seems to ignore two main things. One is that wild animals have wonderful, actually not always wonderful, but you know, life in the, in the wild isn't always that great, but they, they have their, their wildlife they're, they're programmed for until that last moment. That's right. And if I were a deer or a sheep or a, whatever the, the, the species is, uh, given how I know a lot of these animals die, mm-hmm. I, I, if I were given the option, I think I'd rather die from your bow than from a wolf yeah. eating me while I'm still alive. That's right. That's a brilliant um, thing. That yeah. I brilliant. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th- that's always been my consideration: is like these animals die pretty horrific deaths oh, yeah. if you just let them die uh, die naturally. Absolutely. So I, I'm not convinced that a, a thirty out six shot or, or a bow shot is, is worse. Worse uh, than being eaten alive. Even if it's a bad shot, mm, frankly, yeah. even if somebody does 
slip up or, you know, the wind isn't right. What, there are a lot of different factors, but even if somebody messes up and takes a bad shot and it takes a while to die, it's still on balance, not that bad considering like the, the range of possibilities out there. Yeah, that's right. It makes me think of uh, something in like Caleb, something you mentioned uh, just a minute ago about modern agriculture, uh, something called a CAFO, C-A-F-O, confined animal feeding operation. And mm. that quality of life for those animals that are being raised in that, I would say is greatly inferior to that experienced by a wild animal. I um, think so. Yeah, that's yeah. awful. I mean, it's, I, I hesitate to pass like judgment on it because the reality is that it does reduce food prices and yeah, reduce absolutely. hunger and there are all, there are all these, a lot of competing interests here, yeah, but definitely. it is, it's not something most people want to be associated with, right. frankly. Mm. Um, yeah. Not whenever it's framed in that light, right? It can be framed differently to where you can definitely emphasize the, the pros of the, the CAFO. And I think that, you know, a lot of, I think there was a documentary called Food Inc. or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that may have emphasized some of it, but a lot of it is uh, has to do with with dairy cattle, I think. But uh, if you came and looked, at, oh, and also uh, like the uh, chickens that lay eggs uh, within the cages, like they spend most of their life in the cage. But I think if you came and looked at one of our my family's broiler houses, and you saw this house full of twenty something thousand chickens, whenever they're I guess about eight weeks old and six pounds. Uh, you would look at all those chickens stacked in their shoulder to shoulder and think, well, this is terrible. You know, why is this? Why is this like it is? But uh, those chickens are going to get picked up within a couple of days and then sent off to the processor. But but the, the whole point being uh, wild animals can, you know, when contrasted with the quality of life of animals that are being raised in a confined animal feeding operation, quality of life for wild animals is typically pretty good. But on the other hand, something that I'm vaguely aware of, but I don't know very much about, is in a lot of areas where there aren't a lot of hunters, you get deer populations that are more or less out of control. And at Mm -hmm. some point, the local authority actually hires hunters to reduce that population. I'm wondering if you have anything to say about the population control aspect of having a hunting community. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, I think, like you said, it's particularly relevant for people in suburban areas. Soccer mom driving home in her van with a car full of kids, you know, in the evening time in November, you know, going 40 miles an hour in her neighborhood and this big buck runs in front of her and they crash into it. That's a safety hazard for her and, you know, her kids in the car, right? Uh, there is a uh, short film, it's almost a, a short documentary called, uh, I think it's called Within City Limits, and it deals with this exact uh, issue, and it's this guy, he's bow hunting in the suburban areas surrounding Washington, D.C., and he's not a contractor, nobody's contracting him to do this, um, but it is legal in this area that he's hunting to bow hunt within the city limits in the suburban uh, suburban areas of Washington, D.C., and uh, he's actually hunting out of, like, kids' tree houses and playhouses in people's <laughs> backyards. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. That's awesome. It's yeah, and, uh, and it's, but it's for that purpose, right? It's, it's for population control because these deer have, um, you know, it's almost like they've become a nuisance, right? But it's almost like uh, urban development ha- is sprawling, Ur- urban sprawl is occurring, right? And they're encroaching onto these deer's, the deer's habitat, and deer are extremely adaptable. White-tailed deer are, deer are. I mean, they can live in little slivers of woods. I mean, it would really surprise you how small of a, a block of woods that a deer can live in, and multiple deer at that. And so, 
yeah, it is. It can be a safety issue, um, and uh, it can it can get out of control. But I think there's something to be said for it, for sure. Uh, a lot of people, I think, don't understand or um, don't appreciate how integrated the hunting community is with the conservation community. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about your interest in conservation and how those two things overlap? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, one of their uh, chief slogans is hunting is conservation, right? So like I mentioned earlier, the hunter plays such an integral role in the life of these animals, especially um, on issues of conservation. So whenever we're talking about conservation, uh, we're not just talking about the, we're not just talking about, um, you know, not harvesting any of the resource from the landscape. Uh, On the contrary, we are talking about actually serving the landscape so that we may reap a benefit from it, right? So that we can gain some utility from it. But utility, uh, merely only utility is not the goal because that will then lead us to exploit the resource, right? So our goal is to think of ways, creative ways, that we can serve the landscape so that it will be more productive. So practically, uh, and a a lot of this is uh, much, well, I wouldn't say much more common, but a lot of these considerations take effect in the West. So west of the Mississippi, uh, where there are vast swaths of public land. So a lot of your Western states, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Nevada, Wyoming, Montana, uh, the state of Washington, uh, Oregon, a lot of these uh, states have vast amounts of public land, uh, national forest land, wilderness areas, and they house a lot of our uh, nation's big game animals, right? And they require some uh, pretty specific types of land management practices. So I'm particularly uh, interested in elk and how elk herds are managed and how that resource is, is cared for. And, you know, a lot of the conservation issues that interest me are how private landowners are uh, collaborating with these state agencies in order to, uh, so the private landowners and the state agencies that manage these vast pieces of public land come together and they collaborate on a management strategy for uh, these. So what I'm interested in is elk. So what they'll do is uh, they will, employ controlled burns on a lot of their grasslands to generate new growth in the spring. Uh, They will uh, negotiate deals about uh, deconstructing fences so that migration routes for these elk can persist. Uh, And even so, even a lot of these state agencies will contract with the government to negotiate deals about uh, road overpasses. So sometimes whenever a uh, uh, a highway system is being constructed in a new place, it will be, uh, I think this was a, an issue in Wyoming uh, for mule deer migrations, actually. So in this one particular place, this new interstate was going in, and state agencies uh, came together with, uh, I think, some of the, the people who were building this road uh, in relation to the government, and they built this overpass where the mule deer could actually have their migration route still intact, and they would actually walk over the the new interstate on like dirt that uh like served as their migration route so anyway do do they actually do it they actually take the overpass they actually did yeah they actually will walk over 
walk over the road on the overpass. I don't, I don't know if there was extensive study about how effective it was, but it was definitely used by some, by some of the animals. Yeah. I Googled and yes, uh, they look pretty cool. Uh, I think there were some animals that were walking over it. Didn't have enough time to figure out how much, you know, they do it, but it is a thing yeah. and it looked legit. Um, so back to your question, I digress a little bit, you know, hunters roles in conservation. It's about, um, so serving the land, thinking how can we best put our efforts and our ingenuity into making this land, this resource more productive. And uh, for me personally, we've got our piece of land 35 minutes away. We, my dad and I enjoy uh, constructing food plots. Uh, we like to do the control burns. We like to you know, selectively harvest a certain amount of does every year to keep the, the population balanced. Um, all of these things together... I think serve the the resource well and and continue to make it perpetually productive, and that's what we're after, right? We're after uh, these thriving ecosystems that are going to persist in in perpetuity, so that you know future generations can enjoy them as well. What makes you interested in elk specifically? Yeah. Oh man. Gosh, I think it's it's partially to do with their size. They're just huge animals. Uh, yeah. the, that. Uh, majestic antlers that they've got. They're just humongous, their antlers, whenever they grow up to maturity. Uh, and there is something, uh, some people might think this is strange, but there's something magical about the way that they bugle. Like if you hear a piercing, screaming bugle, like echoing off the hillsides of the Daddle Mountains in New Mexico, like whenever, so in New Mexico, no crickets in the evening time. So last September, September 18th last year, I killed my first and only bull elk. And whenever he bugled at about 50 yards from me, it was so loud that I, I mean, it was, I thought the mountain was going to like crash down on me. It echoed and caused like, it almost was like the ground shook. You could feel his entire energy of his 600 pound body being put into that bugle. And it was just a really unique sound. And I'd never heard anything like that, obviously being from South Georgia, that is just a totally foreign thing to me. And, uh, you know, never had the opportunity to pursue an animal like that before. But I just think they're majestic, right? I mean, they have, uh, and they're super adaptable also. So they used to be a plains animal uh, prior to uh, the construction of the railroads and westward expansion. Uh, you know, we essentially drove the elk off of the plains of Nebraska and South Dakota up into the mountains, right? Into Wyoming and Montana and Colorado where they were much more or much less accessible. Uh, it was tough to get to them whenever they were 10 and 11,000 feet in elevation. So, but the elk were like, if we're going to, you know, if we're getting pressured down here on the grasslands where living is easy and food is plentiful, we'll just go up into the, into the mountains and survive there. And that's exactly what they did about, you know, two to 300, 400 years ago. Um, you know, they, and now they call their, they make their home in some of the most rugged and remote places in the, in the West, in the United States. And uh, it's really remarkable to watch them, uh, you know, scale an almost vertical hillside with seemingly no problem. And whenever I'm at 10,000 feet trying to, to hike, hike that in pursuit and I get 30 yards and, you know, almost keel over because I can't catch my breath, it gives you a new respect for an animal like that. I mean, they're, they are just uh, super adaptable. They're incredibly strong. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they're just fascinating to watch. And that bugle is just something special. You just don't you, – you will never hear another sound like it. And you can't describe it effectively. I don't even think that 
you know, the most skilled elk callers like Corey Jacobson. I mean, he's good. He can call, but I don't think that he's even good enough to do the real thing. He's, uh, because it is a very unique sound. So when you were considering coming to law school, what other options did you think about and what ultimately brought you to the law? Yeah, good question. Um, uh, other options I was considering, honestly, this was the one law school was what I was putting my money on. Uh, whenever I finished, so I did my, finished my undergrad at UGA. And then, like I said, I went and I worked, uh, with my dad for about a year, went and worked another job at a chemical manufacturing plant. We manufactured, uh, insecticides. And then I just realized that, you know, this is not something that I, that I want to do forever. Um, and I had always had a particular interest in the law because I enjoyed words so much. And uh, that may seem like a, you know, a strange thing to, to really enjoy, you know, words individually. But I love, as evidenced by my enjoyment of writing and my creation of the blog, I love to write and to construct ideas and to communicate them through words, and especially the written word. And... Um, you know, I thought to myself, you know, how can I, how can I exercise this love for words? And um, I had had a particular interest in law in undergrad because I took two classes that one was agribusiness law and the other was environmental law taught by the same guy, Terrence Sintner. He's at the University of Nebraska now. Uh, I think he's teaching law there. And um, he actually, after I finished those courses, encouraged me and said, hey, you know, and but he would essentially send out a personalized letter to each person who made a good grade in the class. I was able to make a good grade, and he sent a letter to me. I got it after the semester, and it essentially said, uh, you know, good job in the course this semester. Have you ever considered, you know, the law, like practicing law when you're going to law school? And until that time, I had not. And uh, I really valued his opinion, though. I really enjoyed the subject matter of the course. And so I got to thinking, you know, maybe this is something that I might enjoy. And so that was in the back of my mind, and I graduated and worked a couple of jobs in the agriculture industry, and then it was still looming, this, uh, this wondering if I would enjoy practicing law. And it took till my second job, me realizing that, yes, this is what I want to do, and it was just kind of a refinement process. It was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a process of elimination, but um, also I think time clarifies a lot of things, you know, you start to realize what, what is important and what things you enjoy and even what you're good at. So, uh, I think that I had some, some things that might have, you know, I don't know, predisposed me to, to enjoying the law. And like I said, my enjoyment of words, and, uh, there are plenty of words in law school. Let me tell you guys, I know you guys know that. So <laughs> a lot of words, whether yeah. writing Reason. or reading. So it is, it is all words. There's nothing, I've got more than I bargained for there for sure. Uh, but yeah, I think that's kind of what led me, led me to law. And, um, yeah, so here I am now. And do you plan to practice environmental law or do you, it, it sounds like you do, but yeah. have you decided on that or is that just kind of like one of several options? Right. You know, that was, that was the aspiration coming in, I think. So I think I would have told you in the beginning of August that my dream job would have <laughs> been to, um, uh, work in some legal capacity with someone like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or Ducks Unlimited and want some nonprofit that was uh, working for the interest of wildlife and land conservation and the advocacy of public lands, right? That would, that would have been my, my, 
uh, greatest aspiration for working with the law. Uh, having been in law school now for, for just about half a semester um, and having some time to con- reconsider that, as much as I would love to do that, and I think that that would be incredibly fulfilling, I think that that kind of work would, at a minimum, if it was Ducks Unlimited, take me west to Memphis, Tennessee, and if it was Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, probably take me to Missoula, Montana. And f- number one, that's a that's a pipe dream job. That would be my, you know, that would be a dream. Uh, but also, I, I just don't think that I could justify leaving all of my family here in Georgia. That's where all my family is, and I I think that I would probably like to to stay here and and be be near them because I have no connections to Montana other than elk and public lands and I think my family considerations will probably keep me here um so yeah that's kind of been my decision making process and and why I have came why I uh how I got here and also you know about what jobs I'm thinking about post grad so about about at this time, Bailey always comes and checks out whoever's sitting right there. <laughs> so you got the dog sniffing at you. So you you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but you're a Georgia boy. Mm-hmm. Um, did you consider any other law schools, or was UGA kind of your 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 number one? Or yeah, how did you end up at UGA specifically? Yeah, so I uh, I had a few considerations. They were all in the southeast. Um, I wanted to be within reasonable driving distance of my home, I suppose. I really didn't want to have to fly out to, to a law school somewhere. I did look at uh, uh, law schools in Arizona just to <laughs> just to see you know what their you know m- median LSAT scores were and, and things like that because, I was thinking to myself, if I can establish residency in Arizona, how many years would it take me to accumulate enough points to get an elk tag there for an archery? <laughs> and so um, I, I d- decided that uh, it wasn't worth it to just to go out there and establish residency, build points, and, and go elk hunting one year, even though it would have been incredible. But no, my primary considerations were in the southeast. I, uh, I looked at Florida State also. Uh, my other main I think my number two consideration was definitely Mercer. So I, I actually only sent applications to, to two schools um, before I got the acceptance notification. So I, I applied to Mercer and then I applied to Georgia. But I applied to Georgia through the early decision process because I wanted UGA to know without uh, any doubt that they were my number one pick. I wanted to put uh, all the effort that I could towards that application because I, I knew Athens. I had you know I'd finished undergrad there just two years prior. And uh, loved Athens, had a great church family here, knew a lot of people. Uh, we had just got the piece of land there in Wilkes County that was 35 minutes away. And so I was just thinking, man, if I could get into law school at Georgia, I could hunt on the weekends and I could, you know, be going to North Avenue Church and I know Athens. And so it ended up working out. I, I, they admitted me through the early decision process. And I'm glad that I, that I, I applied through that avenue. Um, so that's how I got here and yeah, very glad that I made it here. We are running up on our time limit, but everybody needs to check out Randy Newberg on YouTube, uh, within city limits, which is a short film. Is that on YouTube? That's on YouTube. Okay. Be. Check out with, within if it's not city on limits. YouTube, it'll definitely be on Vimeo and go listen to a uh, video of an elk bugling. I'm not going <laughs> to put one in here. So go listen to that. Thanks for coming. Thanks Ligan. <laughs>